defining moments. What are your defining moments? As we grow up, we go through different seasons of life where we capture in our thoughts, our memory banks, certain experiences that seem to stay with us. Almost as if these memories are stuck in our minds with some type of invisible permanent glue on them. We all have those moments in our lives where we accomplish something big that means a lot to us, at least in our own eyes. Or something special is done for us by others that means a lot to us. Or maybe something spectacular and amazing is revealed for the first time to us and it leaves us with a lasting impact, a lasting imprint. And in some cases, we may even experience an event that changes our entire life trajectory. Now, the younger we are, these defining moments may not be life-changing at first, uh, but any of us who've kind of grown up and seen life, seen some things, we can all look back on our lives and recognize some of those mile markers, even if they were small at the time. We really look back and realize that they made us who we are today. I mean, can you resonate with any of these mile marker memories in your life? Getting placed on the honor roll in junior high or high school. Making first chair in the school band. Getting your driver's license. Pitching a shutout in baseball. Or making the final shot to win the big soccer or basketball game. Being the first to graduate from college in your family. Receiving your first paycheck. Receiving your first pay raise the enjoyment of your family reunion that you've planned for for months, the enjoyment of your wedding day that you planned for maybe for years, the day you welcomed your first child into the world, the day you bought your first car, the day you bought your first house, the day you found out you're moving to a new city or a new state, the day you found out you're going to be a proud grandparent, or the day you received your first notice in the mail that you finally qualified for Medicare. Can I get an amen for anyone over 60? All right. These are all just a handful of examples of what many of us might consider defining moments in our lives. And these defining moments are experienced by millions and millions of people all around the world almost every day. But our Christian lives are also filled with defining moments. Our spiritual growth as followers of Jesus, we will experience defining moments the longer we follow Jesus. Maybe you can recall some of these in your own Christian walk. The day you became a Christian. The day you were baptized as a Christian in front of your church family. The first time you memorized a verse of scripture, John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. Yes. The first time you decided to officially join a local church. The first time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever. The first time you led a Bible study. 
The first time you preached a sermon. The first time you were brave enough to pray in a Sunday evening service at CCBC. The list could go on and on and on. So friends, what are your defining moments? And are your defining moments only things you've accomplished? Especially for us who are Christians here this morning, aren't there also defining moments in our lives of things or events that happened to us? Something that out that occurred outside of us, but left a lasting impact on us? I mean, at the end of the day, isn't salvation itself a gift from God? God's work in Christ done for us and in us. For the earliest disciples who followed Jesus, they too had defining moments in their lives. Some of their experiences are really just like ours that we might experience today. And yet some of their experiences were quite unique, never to be repeated in the same exact way again. Some of which their defining moments had impacts that affected the rest of their life. For the disciples who followed Jesus back then that we read about in the Gospels, what were the circumstances that surrounded these defining moments? And for us here this morning as followers of Christ, we too should consider all the ways Jesus is creating defining moments in our lives as we behold who Jesus really is. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, specifically for our sermon text today, we'll be looking at Mark 9, verses 2 to 13. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 493, Mark chapter 9. Last time together, we left off with Peter acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ. Mark 8, verse 29. The Christ meant the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior who came to deliver his beloved people from sin's bondage and demonic oppression and to reign over them as king forever. But in Peter's recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, along with the other disciples too, we discovered how they didn't always have a complete understanding of who Jesus was and why he came to this earth. As Peter passionately, though ignorantly, attempts to rebuke Jesus of all people. Peter quickly receives a sharp, heart-exposing rebuke himself. A rebuke delivered now, remember, by the most loving man to ever walk this earth, Jesus. Jesus, in that sense, sets a perfect example for us today of what a true friend will do for someone they say they love when they see their friend in error. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or excessive and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. True friends will speak the truth and love to one another when their friend is in error. 
True friends will speak the truth in love to one another when their friend is in error. Are you that type of friend to others? Do you have any friends in your life that would love you enough to speak the truth in love when you are in error? Beloved, we should all pray that God would give us friends like that. And we should all pray that God would make us that kind of friend to love others in that way. So here in Mark 8, verse 33, that we looked at last week, Jesus lovingly and boldly corrects Peter's stumbling block misunderstanding of the Messiah's mission. And in doing so, he plainly teaches that he would first have to suffer and die before he would ever rule as the long-awaited anointed king descended from the throne of David. The Messiah's mission then, as we see the New Testament unfold, was one of suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Phony, fake, so-called health and wealth gospel preachers on TV, they get that backwards. You can forego suffering and get glory now. No, the Christian life, according to Jesus, his example and what he taught is suffering, then glory. This would also be the missional shape of the life every Christian will have as they follow Jesus in this fallen world. Every follower of Jesus will have to count the cost. Is Jesus worth whatever suffering I have to face. Therefore, Jesus would do as he did all throughout the Gospels. He would teach and reteach these same disciples over and over again that he was the suffering servant, as Isaiah 53 prophesied, the one who would be rejected and killed and then die before he would rise from the dead. Again, everyone, Jesus says, who wishes to follow that Messiah will also have to count the cost that suffering will entail if you follow this suffering servant. Look with me again back in Mark 8, starting in verse 34, just to refresh your minds again. Mark 8, starting in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, that's where we left off last time. This morning, we pick up in the Gospel of Mark almost a week later on the calendar. Verse 2 says, six days. Before Jesus begins leading the disciples towards Jerusalem, where he'll go to die, He'll take three of his disciples and head 14 miles northeast 
near the region of Caesarea Philippi, up a well-known high mountain. Please follow with me, starting in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Uh, This is God's word. For all you note takers out there, I won't have a precise outline that I normally do for my sermons, so relax your finger if you were like ready for point one, but pay careful attention. We're going to stay in the car and we're going to drive together and notice some things in the passage before we see some beautiful things unfold about Jesus. So as we see here in verse two, Jesus did something. He didn't do all the time, but certainly he did some of the time. Instead of taking all 12 of his disciples to the next town, the next field trip to the next village, this time he only took three, a fourth of them. Mark tells us it was Peter, James, and John. Uh, These three disciples are seen in a handful of times in the Gospels, accompanying Jesus as an inner circle, you might say. The other time that we've already read about in Mark's gospel is Mark 5, verse 37, in the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was Peter, James, and John who got to see that up close and personal with Jesus. Though Jesus loved all his disciples, he chose to spend intimate time with three of them at pivotal moments throughout his earthly ministry. You may recall Peter and James and John and how they're all found together, fishing 
at the beginning of Mark's gospel. It was in Mark 1, verses 16 to 20, where Jesus approaches Peter and Andrew, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus pursues them as he pursues each one of us. And then he summons them to spend the rest of their days no longer fishing for food out of the Sea of Galilee, but to spend the rest of their lives fishing for men, teaching others how to follow Jesus. Now here in this account, Jesus decides here in this next venture with his three to head up a high mountain. This is most likely Mount Hermon, which stands at a towering height with its peak reaching an altitude of about 9,230 feet. This is unique. This is a little different. Why does he take just three? What was Jesus doing by leading these three disciples up to this high mountain? Did you know what Mark says? By themselves. Was Jesus going to do something or teach something to them that the other disciples would never get to experience firsthand? Let's continue reading to find out. Previously in Mark's gospel, we know that the mountains are not a foreign place for Jesus. So if you're a mountain lover, you're pro-Ozarks, Jesus was too. In Mark 3, verse 13 and following, Jesus is seen on a mountain, calling the 12 disciples and appointing them as his future apostles. They would be unique and a divinely called bunch of young men, often referred to as the twelve in the scriptures. Twelve men that Jesus specifically called out for his service. Twelve men that Jesus desired to have with him for fellowship, for friendship, and twelve men that he would teach and equip to send them out to preach the gospel. We also know that the mountains were a place where we read that Jesus sometimes chose to get away, remove himself from the crowds and sometimes even his own disciples in order to spend intimate time with his heavenly father. We read in Mark 6, verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So back to Mark 9. This specific account in Mark chapter 9 that we are studying today is also found in Matthew 17 and in Luke chapter 9. Each of the synoptic gospels give helpful details to this account, and they kind of color in where some gray areas are left in Mark's gospel account. For example, in Luke 9, 28, Luke tells us that Jesus led these men up the high mountain in order to pray. Just a quick pause there. Wouldn't it have been so amazing to be invited to Jesus' prayer meeting? I mean, Sunday nights are great here at CCBC. Praying with Roy is great. But to have Jesus, you know, send you a text message on a smartphone, hey, you want to go up to Mount Hermon and commune with our Father? I'm sure the other nine disciples probably struggled with a little holy jealousy when Jesus seemed to spend more time with the three rather than with them. Again, just a quick observation as we're riding in the car together. Friends, we should all be thankful for whatever blessings Whatever opportunities, whatever ministries, whatever families, whatever spiritual gifts 
the Lord gives us. We should not window shop and covet and be jealous of what God gives someone else over ourselves. Friends, be content with whatever God's given you and cultivate it for God's glory. Anyways, amidst a few additions and details we might read among the Gospels, all three accounts record this spectacular event that would occur. Something profound would be revealed before their eyes, a defining moment, we might say, that three of them got to experience at a pivotal time in their ministry with Jesus, secluded, alone with Jesus. So what did these disciples see? What did these disciples hear when they made that long, arduous hike up on Mount Hermon? Look again at verse 2. In verse 2, we read that Jesus was transfigured before them. It was a word that meant to change or to transform. In Mark's transfigurative narrative here, this word doesn't signify that Jesus changed in his nature though, as if he was no longer a man. Rather, his appearance before the disciples was radically changed. In other words, they saw something of Jesus in a way they had never seen before. Mark mentions in verse 3, regarding this transfiguration, that some of that transfiguration was his clothing. He says that his clothes became dazzling or radiant and intensely white. In other words, what he was wearing became white, white. Parents, you know what it's like when your kids go out and play in the rain, run all through the mud and come through the house, and you go, "Uh uh-uh, clothes first, clothes first, and you get the bleach, go old school, and we're going to bleach these bad boys till they're white again. Well, friends, the whiteness that radiated off of Jesus was more bright and more white than bleaching your bed sheets or clothes four times, greater than a bottle of whiteout, greater than a bunch of white clouds on a clear day. In fact, the other gospel writers expand on this bright transformation with the following descriptions. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 17, verse 2, He says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Luke's gospel says in Luke 9, 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Friends, this was an experience of seeing Jesus in a way they had never seen before. This was like someone living in a dimly lit cave for two years. And then all of a sudden, the sunlight comes busting in and beaming into that dimly lit cave, making it bright as the noonday. These disciples were probably one second away from being blinded like we would be if we stared at the sun today. But this mountaintop experience wasn't over yet. For these three disciples. Not only did their mentor, their master teacher, their Messiah's experience, or appearance rather, 
radically changed before their eyes, they also witnessed some mind-blowing conversations that were going on at the same time. Look with me at verse 4. Verse 4 says that Jesus is conversing with someone that did not walk up that mountain earlier that day. Where did they come from? Were they hiding under a bush? Who are these people? Jesus is conversing with two dead Old Testament saints. They've been dead a long time. They've been gone from this life a long time ago. But suddenly, they were alive. They were alive and well. Just as much as you and I see each other this morning. Who are these men? Elijah and Moses. They were visibly seen. They were audibly heard more than the person you're sitting next to this morning. But amidst this mind-blowing experience, what did Peter and the other disciples overhear Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? And of all people, why these two men from the Old Testament? And how did the disciples respond to this spectacular event? I mean, think for a second. First, Jesus leads them up this really high mountain. They're probably tired. In fact, Luke's gospel says they're asleep. They're so exhausted from this long day hiking with Jesus. And then... Their Savior who's praying, and they're thinking, okay, we've, we've prayed with Jesus before. We kind of know, you know, how he begins the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then all of a sudden, whammy, they look up at the Messiah. He's shining bright as the sun, his clothes dazzling white. But now, they are seeing more clearly than even we might see on the most expensive high-definition TV could capture for our favorite movie. They see with their own eyes two men that they had read about in the Old Testament, that they had had Torah studies with, with different teachers, and now they're hearing them with their own ears. They're hearing Elijah speak. They're hearing Moses speak. Two heroes in the faith, alive and in living color, talking with the Messiah. What were they talking about? In Mark's gospel, we're simply not told. But in Luke's gospel, we're given an insightful sneak peek into what these men were dialoguing with Jesus over. Listen to Luke 9, verses 30 to 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure there can also be translated exodus. Here, these Old Testament saints are hearing a conversation with Jesus about Jesus' future death on the cross. Guess what they're also calling his death at the cross is going to be? It's going to be an exodus. An exodus 
that would far surpass the exodus out of Egypt. This time it would be an exodus that would take place first in Jerusalem. But why these two men? I mean, how did they get the kind of lucky, out-of-the-grab-bag, hat-straw-pick to be talking with Jesus and, you know, to be kind of brought back to life, at least temporarily? Was there something significant about Elijah and Moses that made this miraculous event necessary to include them? Well, both Moses and Elijah are known as prophets in the Old Testament. Do you remember Moses? He was the primary leader, deliverer, and mediator of the Old Covenant people of Israel. He was the human instrument that God would use to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. As already made note of, what we know today as the Exodus. And Elijah was a prophet as well. He was greatly used of God to bring about, or to bring about at least for a while, a revival of sorts amongst the people of God. And that when he preached, judgment fell upon Jezebel and all those who worshiped Baal, but also restoration and revival for those who worship the one true God. Remember Elijah from last week? Elijah didn't die a natural death either. He was ushered into heaven on the coolest obituary page ever on chariots of fire. Yet both of these men, have you ever studied their life closely to pick out what they had in common? They lived at two very different times in history. And yet both of them ministered on or near a mountain. Mount Sinai, to be exact, or Mount Horeb, as our brother John read earlier from John or from Exodus chapter 24, that time with Moses. And both of these men are mentioned together at the end of Malachi's prophecy, which when you read Malachi's prophecy, or I preached through it back in the fall of 2020, you will notice that when you see it all together, Malachi ties this powerful combination of God's work of judgment and God's work of restoration to his covenant people using Moses and Elijah. Malachi 4, verses 4 to 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, or Sinai, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, Moses and Elijah were like twin peaks of God's mountaintop prophets in the Old Testament. And the visual display of them, of all people, talking to Jesus about his exodus is showing that their ministry, as great as it was back in the day, was inferior to Jesus' ministry. The glory of their ministry under the old covenant was passing away. And the far more superior glory of the new covenant with a better mediator that would come with better promises and a better hope was about to be inaugurated. 
It was about to be enacted through his blood being shed on the cross in Jerusalem. A new day was dawning on the mountaintop at Mount Hermon. A greater and mightier prophet had arrived at God's appointed timing. A more powerful international and greater eschatological exodus and spirit-wrought revival was about to begin in Jerusalem. Who would accomplish this exodus? It would be one more faithful than Moses. It would be one more courageous and powerful than Elijah. It would be none other than the one who led these three disciples up that mountain in Mark chapter 9. It would be Jesus. It would be the lowly and gentle Jesus who had revealed himself as a savior, more powerful and with greater authority than Moses had in the exodus of the Israelites. How do we know that? Well, notice first the disciples' response to what they witness. And then notice what happens immediately afterwards. Notice first the disciples' response. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, that just means master teacher. It's a respectful term for the one that taught them the scriptures. Rabbi, it is, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. Have you ever been so afraid that you were lost for words? Have you ever been so afraid that you were lost for words? Maybe it was a bad dream you had and you didn't even know how to describe it to someone the next day without the horrible images coming back up in your mind. Maybe you've witnessed a car wreck firsthand and just the memories of them bring back a terror you never want to relive. Maybe you've seen the destruction of a tornado that hit nearby where you lived and then all of a sudden you hear the sirens go off again in your neighborhood. Or maybe you've encountered a dangerous animal and you literally don't know what to do or what to say when you encounter it. Well, for Peter, who never seemed to lack words, utters the first thing that comes out of his foot-shaped mouth. He looks to his Messiah, his master teacher, suddenly who had been transformed in appearance, suddenly who was speaking with giant heroes in the faith, and he makes an offer. Hey, Jesus, I, I got it. I'll offer you, I'll make three tents. We'll go to Bass Pro and get the best. You know what the word tent is there in the original language? It literally means three tabernacles, three booths, three small Dwelling places, probably made in animal skins of some sort. Peter thought to himself, I got it. I'll give Elijah and Moses and Jesus somewhere to stay. Somewhere to find shelter in while they're up here. Why on earth did Peter do that? 
Maybe Peter remembered that Old Testament feast, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. We're not told explicitly why. Whether or not Peter knew what he was actually requesting, the gospel writers all make it abundantly clear. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. The word literally means they were scared out of their minds. But why? Why were they scared? Had Jesus threatened them? Had Moses yelled at them? Did Elijah try to call down fire from heaven like he'd done before and kill them? No. In fact, none of them even spoke to Peter. Did you catch that? None of them turned to Peter and even responded to his kind offer. But someone else spoke that day. Peter, James, and John thought they had seen it all, right? But now they're about to get the front row seat in heaven's auditorium, and here's something that would be a defining moment for their lives. Look at verses 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them, much like the Shekinah glory cloud that we read about in the Old Testament with God at Mount Sinai descending in a cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, the same voice Moses heard on Mount Sinai a long time ago. What did they hear? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Friends, do not just keep reading in your Bible study and move on to something and miss what just happened. Peter, James, and John heard the actual audible voice of the living God. Better than the best sound that beats headphones could ever channel words in human ears, these young men heard it loud and clear, the voice of their maker. Not a voiceover from an actor in a movie or a Bible app, but the actual audible voice of God Almighty. But what did God say? What did they hear pierce through the heavens into their small human ears on that spectacular day on Mount Hermon? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. On that mountain, they would be privileged to hear the voice of a father, a heavenly father who has eternally loved his only begotten son. The same voice that pierced John the Baptist's ears back at the beginning of Mark's gospel when Jesus was being baptized by John. Do you remember Mark 1, verse 11? 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You see, the first time human ears had heard heaven speak about this man being the son of God, it was the father speaking to the son about the father's pleasure in the son. But this time, we read about the father speaking to the disciples about his son. And this time, he attaches this adoring affirmation of his son with a clear, unmistakable, undeniable, life-altering, and life-trajectory command. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The most important human being in all of human history that will be talked about, slandered, worshipped, and praised all throughout this week, all around the world, as we remember the passion of the Christ. This Jesus got heaven's audible approval. No one makes Jesus God's son. He is God's son. Jesus doesn't need our affirmation. The Father eternally affirms and loves and has pleasure in his only begotten son. Friends, this is the Jesus of Nazareth we've been studying about for a long time now. The one born of a virgin who walked with these disciples and called them to carry their crosses. This is God's eternally loved and eternally begotten son. This is the one they would literally leave everything for. And this is the one that all of us who have put our faith in are giving our lives for too. Friends, this is the one that was transfigured before them. This is Jesus, the Christ. What the Father was declaring on Mount Hermon in this transformative day, was that Jesus is now the final and divinely authoritative prophet who fulfilled the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18. This would be a good one to look up later when you get home. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking of himself, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of my Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. You don't want to hear the audible voice of God, by the way. The people of Israel were terrified to hear his voice again. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Brothers and sisters, why should we listen to Jesus? 
to my non-Christian friend, why should you listen to Jesus? That is the question of this passage. That is where we've been driving down the highway, looking at all these spectacular and mind-blowing realities. The question is this, why? Why should we pay attention to, hear, make time for, tremble before Jesus? We should listen to Jesus because when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. We should listen to Jesus when Jesus speaks because God is speaking. So put on your logical hats this morning. If you didn't get enough caffeine, I'll help you out. Think about the logical alternative, which also means this. If we don't listen to Jesus, we are ignoring God. We are in actuality rebelling against God's own authority. Let me make it real clear. To reject Jesus as Jesus has revealed himself as the Father has affirmed is to reject God himself. Don't ever say, I love God, but I kind of like Jesus, but he's, his views on some things are a little too radical for me. Listen, if Jesus' views are too radical for you, then God's views are too radical for you. It's one and the same. Read the Gospel of John. If you reject Jesus as the only Messiah, as the only Savior who can make you right with God, you are rejecting God. That's why the writer of Hebrews that we heard earlier, he draws our attention that Jesus has the final word on all things. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Moses and Elijah. God used them. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Beloved, Jesus is the eternal word who became incarnate. That means without ceasing to be God, he also took on human flesh and became a man. Friends, to see the glory of God is to behold Jesus in all his glory. The Apostle John said it this way in John 1, starting in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God 
but the monogamous theos has, the only God who is at the Father's son, he has made him known. You know what all that dense theological language basically just said? D.A. Carson says Jesus Christ is God's ultimate self-disclosure. If you've ever prayed, oh God, show me your glory. Reveal your presence to me. The answer is he already has in the person of Jesus Christ. God condescended to us in the person of his own son. Truly God, yet truly man. Another theologian put it this way, the son is the glory made visible. Not a different glory from the father's, but the same glory in another form. The father is the glory hidden. The son is the glory revealed. Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Friends, that means that Jesus is much more than simply another preacher or a prophet to listen to. He is much more than just, you know, in God's top 10 prophet roster. They kind of made it to the final four of March Madness of prophets in the, in the Bible. No, in fact, if you want to know what God is like, look to the one who is the visible image of the invisible God. This is Jesus Christ. You might encounter a Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door. Don't let them intimidate you. Don't let them call you and talk about flowery language and how the world's coming to an end and we need hope in Jehovah. They say a lot of biblical things, but they say a lot of wrong things about Jesus. Jesus is not a God. If Jesus is a God, he's not worthy of our worship. Baloney. Just draw the line really quick at the front doorstep. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he God the Son incarnate or is he just a God? But as the Nicene Creed that we stood up earlier and recited, what did that creed declare? Jesus is begotten of the Father as only begotten. That is from the essence of the Father. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, being made a man. He suffered, and the third day he arose, and he ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Friends, that creed and Mark's gospel are all shouting the same type of authority from heaven that they heard on Mount Hermon. Jesus is worthy of our highest worship. Jesus is worthy of our highest praise. Friends, there are churches galore that talk about Jesus, but don't worship Jesus. He's worthy. Angels bow before him. The voice of heaven adores him. Disciples fall down before him. Friends, he is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. He's far superior than Moses or Elijah. He's far superior than your mom or your dad. He's far superior than your husband or your wife. He's far superior than your grandpa or grandma. He's far superior than your boyfriend or girlfriend. He's far superior than your favorite political candidate or whoever's leading in the Oval Office. He's 
far superior than any theologian, any pastor, any church member who's your friend. He's far superior than any person you will ever meet, friend, family member, or foe. Jesus is worthy. If he doesn't have that high an exalted view in our hearts, we're off. If a church does not worship Jesus in that way, if he's just an add-on like a cherry on their church ice cream, he's nothing to us. He is to be everything or he's nothing. He is worthy. But why? You've made an argument, but you haven't brought me to the place where I'm persuaded, you might say. Jesus is worthy and far superior because God the Father created the world through God's Son by the power of God's Spirit. Jesus is the head of his body, the church. Friends, that means you can't even exist unless Jesus willed it to happen. You can't even be a Christian unless Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Again, as you've heard me say this rant before, I found Jesus, I found Jesus. I didn't know Jesus was lost. Last time I checked, we were. He condescended down to our level, became a man, and died a criminal's death in the place of all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. Friends, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord of your life, and he is Lord of his church. Now, one question we need to be asking ourselves is, man, that's, that's a lot going on at this uh, prayer gathering with Jesus. I mean, I know some, you know some things get a little crazy at times in church gatherings and prayer meetings, but... What are we going to do after we see all this, the disciples are probably thinking. Notice how they responded once they heard the voice of the Father instruct these disciples about the Son. Look at verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The gospel writers here are capturing for us what Peter is coming to grips with in his defining moment. Amidst all the apocalyptic and all the spectacular images of a bright light, seeing resurrected saints talk to each other, the Shekinah glory cloud coming down on the mountain, the voice of God piercing through the sky, the one thing that Peter and the disciples and us today were to experience on that mountain was this, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus above all other voices in your life. Where was Moses? Where did Elijah go? Were they playing like flag football somewhere? Where did they go? They were gone. They vanished. 
only Jesus was in front of them. The voice of Jesus would be what Peter and the disciples and us today should have our number one focus upon. Jesus and Jesus alone. Friends, if someone were to describe your life right now, would they describe you as someone who is listening to Jesus? If a fellow church member wrote down everything they've seen and known about you, or your mom or dad, or a husband, a wife, or a boyfriend, or girlfriend, your classmates in school, or your teammates on the sports field, would they, in their description of you right now in your life, characterize you as someone who is listening to Jesus? Friends, we are all faced with that question this morning, aren't we? And none of us are exempt. All of us have to answer that question. Are we listening to Jesus? Will I ignore Jesus? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I steal from my boss? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I cheat on my spouse? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I neglect prayer? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I sulk and pout when I don't get what I want? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I be stingy with God's resources he has entrusted to me? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I make hobbies and sports more important than my church? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I demand others to serve me? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I seek revenge on my enemies? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I rebel against biblical authority in the local church? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I try to hide in my sin? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I sow seeds of division in my church? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I remain lazy in my daily responsibilities? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I be dishonest on my taxes? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I dishonor my parents? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I neglect my children? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I be ashamed of the gospel? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I emotionally manipulate my husband? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I speak harshly to my wife? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I gossip behind my brother's back? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I be cold and unkind to that sister? Or will I listen to Jesus? Will I suppress the truth of the scriptures? Or will I listen to Jesus? Friends, every Christian, every church, every pastor, everyone at CCBC has to answer that question. Will we listen to Jesus? If we want the church that Jesus has designed for his people, we've got to listen to Jesus. If we want peace and unity and keeping the main thing the main thing, we got to listen to Jesus. You want to see healing and restoration in your friendships and families? Then listen to Jesus. Don't listen to all your feelings. Even if you feel justified in your feelings, 
The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. But friends, there is always safety when you're listening to Jesus. You might say, Brother Blake, are you saying that we could have a mountaintop experience today? I mean, it's beautiful weather. Go out the Ozarks. We could all get in a car together and, and kind of walk up the mountain together. Could we hear the voice of God and see a transformed, majestic, and beautiful view of Jesus like them? If you have your Bibles, hold your place. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Hold your place. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. In Peter's second letter, again, Peter is kind of the main character of the disciples. Are, he's representing the disciples on this experience here. Peter, in his second letter, one of the things you'll notice about 2 Peter, I'd encourage you to read it this week if you've never read it. One of the challenges that his hearers faced was the threat of false teachers misleading Christians. They were scoffing and mocking, saying that Peter was a fraud. He's not a real apostle. He's not worth listening to. And they were scoffing because the second coming of Christ hasn't occurred yet. They were saying, well, you know, where's the sign of his coming? You've been talking about Jesus coming back. Where is he? And they're mocking him. Listen to how Peter, as an apostle who experienced what we read about today in Mark 9, encourages his hearers who were being misled and duped and having wool pulled over their eyes. Listen to what he says, 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, just means fables, foolish stories, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. So in other words, guys, he's saying, listen, I'm not just some kind of hocus pocus random disciple. I saw his glory. I heard the voice of God the Father. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. I remember. You would think Peter would go write his book, you know, I went to heaven and Barnes and Nobles will buy it and make a lot of money and then come out five years, five years later and it was a total wrong. Peter could have ran with that and said, hey, listen to me because, you know, I've had some pretty good life experiences with Jesus. I've had a dream. I've had a vision. I've had the fuzzy wuzzies. You know, the Spirit speaks to me all the time. He could have used that to his advantage. I've seen and experienced the transformation, the transfiguration. But notice what he says to his hearers. Verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Christian apologist Justin Peters says, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Author Mark Jones comments on the significance of Peter making this claim, I saw it, I heard it, and yet the scriptures are more sure, more stable, more authoritative than even my Christian experience. Notice what Mark Jones says, quote, we may not have the visions that he, Peter, James, and John, had of Jesus on the mountain or in the garden, but we have the more fully confirmed word of God. The reliability of the scriptures supersedes even visual experiences. And in this earthly life of faith, we are commanded to pay attention, not to visions or experiences, but to the words of Jesus in the Old and New Testaments. Brothers and sisters, if you want to listen to Jesus in your life, you cannot minimize the reading of God's word in your life. If you want to listen to Jesus in your life, according to Peter's argument, you cannot minimize the reading of Scripture in your life. Friends, the less we expose our minds and hearts to Scripture, the less confident we're going to be we're hearing from Jesus. So friends, learn to cultivate spiritual disciplines now. Sit under the word at church on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. Read the sermon passage ahead of time to prepare your heart for the meal you're about to receive. Sit under the word at Bible studies on Tuesdays and Wednesdays for men and women and children at CCBC. Sit under the word when you're all alone throughout the week. Friends, figure out whatever your rhythms of life are. Figure out whatever season of life you're in. Limit your excuses. Ask for help and center your life around this book. Because when you center your life around this book, you are listening to Jesus. Back to Mark 9. Well, in verse 9 and following, we read of how Jesus led them down the mountain. In similar like fashion, We've seen Jesus do previously. He charged them not to say anything about what they saw and what they experienced. That is, until Jesus would rise from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, he says, hold nothing back. Be a big blabbermouth about Jesus. Gossip the gospel all day, every day, until Jesus comes back or he calls you home. But until then, keep your yapper closed. But then we will notice something also quite common among the disciples. Even after everything they just experienced, they are still slow to understand. Look at verses 10 to 13. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? 
He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. They had heard of Jesus mentioning his resurrection that would soon follow his death, but they were still scratching their heads. They weren't rebuking Jesus. Peter learned that lesson. Yep, guys, I wouldn't speak up and rebuke Jesus. It doesn't really go well. He'll even call you Satan sometimes. Learn from my mistake, guys. They weren't rebuking Jesus, but they were still scratching their heads. They had finished class, but they were going, I'm still not sure how all this fits together. They knew what the prophecy of Malachi had said of Elijah, but they didn't realize that a prophet like Elijah had already come. The one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, Luke 1.17, to prepare the way for the Lord had already come. You see, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the disciples that Elijah did come in the person and ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah, or one like him, coming. And here we are once again, aren't we? The disciples could not connect the dots. Their sword was still somewhat dull. Their minds and hearts were not connecting, just like many of ours are as we follow Jesus. You see, they first had realized Jesus would have to come and suffer and die before he would rise again. And so would John the Baptist. He would suffer and he would die as he fulfilled God's plan for his life and preparing for the Messiah. Friends, the disciples were slowly getting it, little bit by little bit. But they still were not that mature in the faith. They were still so slow to believe and understand everything was Jesus teaching them. And yet, what do we find Jesus doing? He continued to show patience and kindness and forbearance. And he continued to teach them. Friends, whether he was on a mountaintop or in a boat, whether they were eating fish and bread or hanging out at Peter's house, Jesus continued to teach them. You see, beloved, when it comes to discipleship and discipling one another, much patience is required. Patience with ourselves and patience with one another. Friends, are you frustrated with the people God has put in your life? Are you discouraged with the children or grandchildren God has put in your life? Are you annoyed and irritated with the people you are trying to disciple and lead in your life? Friends, remember Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Think of all the ways the Lord has been patient with you in your life. Think of all the ways the Lord has been patient teaching you what the scriptures actually say. And then take that patience that you've received from the Lord 
and show it with others in your life. To my non-Christian friend, have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just quit on these disciples? Why he just didn't kind of fire them? You guys are lousy. You're boneheads. You're hard-headed knuckleheads. Have you ever thought to yourself, why didn't Jesus just drop them all and find more intelligent, easier personalities, better looking, and better behaved disciples to invest in? It's because God's love and God's wisdom is not like our love and our wisdom. The Lord takes delight in nobodies and using them, transforming them for his glory. You see, the Father's voice on that day affirming the Son that he eternally loved is an invitation for you this morning. You can be loved eternally by this Father and this Son by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We are invited in as sinners into this intra-Trinitarian love relationship. Maybe today is a defining moment in your life. And turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. You'll experience the love from a father that you'll never get in the same way from an earthly father again. Let's conclude. The transfiguration account was not Jesus becoming someone he's never been. No, it was Jesus revealing to his disciples who he's always been. The glory of God revealed in human flesh. You see, in Exodus 34, I encourage you to read Exodus sometime, Moses went up that mountain a second time, and he came back with two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and guess what was happening to Moses? His face was glowing because he had beheld a glimpse of the glory of God. In Mark 9, Jesus went up that mountain, and Jesus' face was shining, and the disciples beheld his glory. And today, we're not called to go up any mountains to have some kind of experience with God. We're simply called to study the Old and New Testament scriptures and stare to behold the person and work of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, friends, every time we choose to listen to Jesus, every time, Jesus is creating a defining moment in our life. We are becoming more like him. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would cause each one of us to listen to Jesus. He is the glory of God revealed in human flesh. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of any small and insignificant view we've had of Jesus. Lord, convict us of ways we've been ignoring Jesus in our own life. 
Lord, it'd show us again afresh the joy that can come when we listen to Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.